والحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد uh, the topic on the four imams is something which um, many brothers from the masjid have been suggesting for quite a while. Um, I've been putting it off and it's, the suggestion keeps coming again and again. So I thought it's appropriate to consider the suggestions that have been coming from many individuals. Um, inshallah with the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Today we're having the first of the series on the four great imams of fiqh. Um, the next series and the next talk will be on Imam Malik. The next one after that on Imam Shafi'i, and then finally concluding with Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah. Um, there was a man by the name of Thabit, and once this man, pious man, Thabit, whilst walking, he passed an apple tree, and the apple looked quite tasty. He plucked the apple from the tree, and he began to eat it. And after some time, he thought to himself, hang on, that wasn't my tree, that wasn't my garden, that didn't belong to me. I need to go and apologize. And I need to go and find the master, uh, the owner of this tree, who owns this fruit, that I took this apple by mistake, and I, I need to pay you back. So this month, Abit, he returns, he finds the owner, and he goes to apologize. And, the, and remember, this man Thabit was very sincere. I mean, who, who from amongst us would, want, would go and apologize on something like this? You know, we, we carry out the major of most crimes and it, we don't even blink an eye. The Prophet ﷺ has said that believer is such that when a believer commits even a small act of wrong, it's as if there's a mountain on your head. As if a mountain on your head. And you can't wait to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and get that forgiven. Get that forgiven. You know, in, in Quran, we have certain verses which speak about those people who, at the time of dawn, they are shedding tears and asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for forgiveness. Mother of the believer, Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha, was discussing with the Sahaba, and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam thought that this was referring to people who had committed sins throughout the night. And she was informed that, no, this is referring to those individuals who have spent their entire night in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But when morning came, they said, Oh Allah, we didn't worship you as you ought to be worshipped. Although these individuals, some of them spent the entire night in Ruku, others the entire night in Sajda. But when the morning time came, they are praying, they are crying to Allah. It seemed as if they just, they've just returned from the disco. It seemed as if they've just been committing theft. It seems as if the entire night they had been committing zina. Really, they were spending the time on the musalla in the presence in the court of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praying to him. And at the time of dawn, they are saying, Ma abadnaka haqqa ibadatik. That, oh Allah, we didn't worship you as you ought to be worshipped. This is why we are crying to you. Please, you know, when they're not asking for the forgiveness of their sins. Oh Allah, please accept the little that we have done. So this man, he had some consciousness inside him. <coughs> Thabit, his name was. 
And the Prophet has also told us the sign of a hypocrite and a monophic is that you would, a person would commit a major sin and then just like you know a fly comes and sits on you sometimes and you, you, you push it away. So you know we sometimes just push it away and think it's no big deal. It's no big deal. May Allah open our eyes. So this man he was quite sincere. He was sincere in his relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us sincere in our relationship with Him. Remember this relationship that we have with Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is something that's very personal. It's one to one. Nobody else really knows. It's not to, nothing to do with anyone else. It was never to do with others. Okay, it was never to do with us. We've made it like that. But really the relationship, each person, each individual has a very intimate, private relationship directly with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know that relationship. Somebody asked a pious person, how do you know, how do you know how Allah regards you? How do I know what Allah thinks of me? How do I know? And the reply was given to him, well, what do you regard Allah as? What regard do you have for Allah? The regard you have for Allah, Allah has regard like that for you. We just heard the verses of the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us, Ya Allah says, fear Allah as he ought to be feared. May Allah give us a tawfiq. So Thabit, he was we'd call God conscious, a person of taqwa. I was speaking to some students yesterday that Taqwa isn't something which is optional. Taqwa isn't something Allah has addressed us believers in the Quran time and time again. And one thing He's asked every one of us to try and adopt is Taqwa. Now we have overcomplicated the meaning of Taqwa. When we say Taqwa, we think of like Imam Abu Hanifa. You yeah, don't we? Let, let's, let's, let's talk openly. Okay, it's better that we are very to the point. Okay, let's not sugarcoat things. Let's just speak openly. All right, when we, when, we, when we say taqwa, okay, we see people of taqwa. We're always thinking of, you know, great people. We're thinking of great individuals. Allah wants me and you to be a person of taqwa. Taqwa isn't something that's optional. That when I reach the age of 90, when I can no longer sin, I've got nothing better to do, then I'll be a person, I will try and be a person of taqwa. No, taqwa simply means to do everything Allah wants us to do, and to stay away from that which Allah doesn't want us to do. Simple. It's, that's the simplest and easy way of explaining the meaning of taqwa. Many a times we translate taqwa as the fear of Allah. It means the same thing. You fear Allah in regards to His commands and prohibitions. Meaning, you do what He's told you to do. And you stay away from His prohibitions. It's as simple as that. May Allah grant us taqwa. So this person was a person of taqwa. He was aware of Allah. Even in regards to the apple that he ate. So he went back and when he came to the owner, he went to apologize and said, I ate this apple, I took it and I've come to apologize. Can I pay for it? What can I do? He said, yes, I will forgive you, but on one condition. He said, what's the condition? He said, the condition is that you have to marry my daughter. SubhanAllah, a lot of you are going to think, let's go and steal some apples. Okay. Um, the deal wasn't that cheap. So he said, you have to marry my daughter. He says, okay. If that's what you want me to do, I'm prepared. He said, the only thing is that my daughter is blind. And not only blind, she's also deaf as well. And not only deaf, she's also dumb as well. And she's also disabled with her hands and her feet as well. Now this was challenging. This is when he got put to the test. 
Uh, how serious you are. And in the deen of Allah, this life is a test. That's what it's all about. You know, many of us generally were okay when we're having our happy and good days. But as soon as a test befalls us, okay, that's when we really know. That's when we really know, okay, how much water we're really in. So when the, this was, he, he said, yes, I, I, I want to ask for forgiveness. But this was a test now, how sincere you are. Do you really want to ask for forgiveness? He says, yes, I'm, a, I'm willing to go ahead with it. Bring her on. Okay, she's blind, she's dead. I'll have to deal with it. Because he knew the consequence was either today or that it's going to be the day of judgment. And I'd rather settle the issue now. So he agrees. And once the nikah is over, he's told, you know, you can go and enter. This is my daughter in here. You can go and meet your wife for the first time. He goes, he enters the room and he sees the most pretty and most beautiful girl he's ever seen before. And she, he says, Assalamu Alaikum. And she responds by saying, Wa Alaikum Salam. And he gets a shock. So I thought you're blind first of all. How did you see me? How did you hear my salam? And how did you respond to me? And he thinks this is not the right person. And said, your father told me that you are blind and you are deaf and you are dumb and your hands and feet are impaired. And he says, yes. She says, yes, I understand. My father may have said this. Because I have never looked at anything haram. This is why my father said that she is blind. I don't have a habit of listening to haram. This is why he referred to me as deaf. I don't have a habit of speaking haram. This is why he referred to me as being dumb. My hands and feet don't go towards haram. This is why I, I have been nurtured in this way. It says Thabit married this girl. And from this union, they had a son. The son's name was Nu'man bin Thabit, more commonly known as Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah. Many lessons we can learn from here. And the importance of good parenting. Good parenting. You know, parenting starts from before, you know, we, we start thinking of parenting when your child becomes 18, okay? And when they don't come home until two or three in the, in the morning, and the mother's crying on the musalla and waiting, when will my son return? Not knowing, is he, is he going to come back uh, sane or insane? Or is he going to be sober? Is he going to be intoxicant? What condition? He, she doesn't know. And this is too late to leave it. Okay, it starts from here. When you look for your marriage partner, some of you are thinking we left it too late now. Okay, um, this, is, this is where it starts from, from finding the right partner. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has told us to look out. He said, a girl is married for a number of reasons. Sometimes you marry, looking, you look at somebody's wealthy status. Somebody you, sometimes you look at the family background. Sometimes we look at beauty. And then Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, sometimes a girl is married because of her hadeen. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, take this point, give this a priority. It doesn't mean we ignore the others. It doesn't mean we ignore the others. Whoever you're going to get married to, of course, they have to be appealing to you. It's going to be your lifetime partner. But at the same time, you must consider the deen. You find somebody whose deen and your personality you like, then Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, go ahead with it. Go ahead with the proposal. May Allah give us the understanding. Amen. Anyhow, so this was the, 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 the coming of uh, Nu'man ibn Thabit. This is the name of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. In regards to his physical appearance, the scholars have mentioned that he was very tall. He was very handsome. He had the mark of sujood on his forehead. 
and on his face you could see the marks which were very evident of tears tears that would flow out of the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when we speak about these particular Imams you know we have a perception when we speak about the people of the past the Salafus Salihin you know they were all the same like you get colors of the rainbow they were all different in their approach in their mannerisms in the way they address certain things in the way they were everyone was different we can't make everybody they were like they were like robots where everybody was sort of the same amongst the Sahaba we find this as well every Sahabi was an individual in himself they all carried special qualities but we found that they were all different and they were very unique in themselves. So similarly, these great Imams and the pious Salafus Salihin were very unique. So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he was very well dressed. This is something that he, he did. He was always very well dressed. He was always smiling and he was a very easygoing person, very down to earth, very approachable. You know, sometimes some, some of us fear approaching certain individuals or even certain scholars thinking, how is he going to take it? What's he going to say? Everyone's different. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, was very easygoing, down to earth and mashallah, he was very well to do as well. The reason for this is his father was a very skilled um, silk tradesman. He used to trade in silk, silken cloth. And he took his son, Na'man, who later became Abu Hanifa, um, with him on his business since the age of five. So he saw his father, he was involved in the trade, and his father was quite well to do. And he was his family business, he was an expert in the cloth. It says Abu Hanifa, you know, without touching the cloth, he could look at the cloth and tell you exactly the worth of that cloth, where that cloth was made, where it's come from. He was an expert. He, this was his family business, family trade. He grew up in this. And the, another feature of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, was he was very, very honest. And his taqwa in regards to his dealings, um, it's something well documented and very, very common. Like I said, he was a businessman from very, his young days. One thing he never did, he never exploited anybody, never. And he had a principle and that principle, some people might find a bit annoying, but that's the way he was. That was his principle and he stepped to it. He had a fixed price and you couldn't haggle with him. There was no bargaining. That doesn't mean bargaining is wrong. Like I said, everyone to themselves. There's nothing wrong with it. Some people allow it, some people don't. That was his rule. That's the way he wanted it. Okay, he didn't want any of that headache. Fixed price. This is the price. This is £10. You buy it or you go to somebody else. It's okay. This was his way. That doesn't mean when you go for Hajj and Umrah, you can't bargain with them. Okay, you must do because sometimes they do look at you. They find out you're from the UK. Okay, let's charge them three times the price of you know what we charge somebody from uh, maybe India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. Maybe so. There's nothing wrong with bargaining, but this is his way. He had a fixed price. Another feature of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, in regards to his business was he never praised his own product. He never praised his product. Again, you want to buy, you buy. You don't want to buy, don't buy. He didn't praise it. One occasion, one of his workers who were working there, uh, he was observing, and somebody came and asked for a particular silken cloth. And the worker took out the cloth, and as he was opening the cloth, he said, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, instantly he stopped the transaction. He stopped the transaction and said, no. You are about to buy the cloth. I don't want you to buy it from here. Go and buy it from somewhere else. Although it wasn't wrong for him to read the durood, 
But he was trying to imply that this is a very nice piece of cloth, that it's made him read the root, thinking, oh, this is a very good quality, like it's from Japan or something. So, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. So, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he never praised his own, he never exploited anybody, and similarly, you know, he was very fair in his dealings. A woman came to sell cloth to Imam Abu Hanifa, and the cloth she was selling, she was selling for 200 dirham. 200 dirham. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah told her that this is not worth 200 dirham, it's worth much more. She says, no, I'm selling it for 200 dirham. He says, oh, come on, I'll show you. He took her to another tradesman and said, how much would you buy this for? He said, easily 500 dirham. You willing to buy it? He goes, yes, sold it. He gave 500 dirham to the woman. See, this was 500. He could have, <laughs> he could have bought it for 200, made 300 or 400 or 500 on it. But he was very, very fair in his dealings. He had a partner in his business, uh, Hafs ibn Abdul Rahman. On one occasion, he told him, I'm about to leave. In my absence, a cloth has arrived. I want you to ensure this particular cloth has a defect. There's a fault in it. There's some mark. It's tainted. You must show the buyer before he buys or she buys that there's a defect in this cloth. They should be made aware of it. And this is the simple rule of trading and business anyway. Um, and Imam Abu Hanifa left. In the absence of Imam Abu Hanifa, um, this cloth was sold. When Abu Hanifa returned, he asked regarding the cloth, where it's gone, so it's been sold. Did you make the buyer aware of the defect? And his partner, the worker, he said, no, I forgot. I forgot to mention it. Immediately, he told his partner that from today onwards, I cannot work with you any longer. And the entire day's dealings and the income that came, he gave away in sadaqah. He gave away in sadaqah. Now, this was a level of taqwa, a level of understanding, a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi had. It's important to understand this. Why? Because somebody whose dealings are such when it comes to dunya, you think they would tamper with the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When it came to the dunya, these people were so cautious. And it's important we study these individuals holistically. Not just look at one aspect, but we look at them thoroughly and to understand. Because nowadays, it, it, it so happens that you could get somebody off the street, a youngster comes to you and he's trying to put himself in the same balance as someone like Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Oh, Abu Hanifa said this, but I think this. And you think, hang on a second, right? Do you even know the Arabic alphabet? <laughs> and he says, no, no, I read it in an English, you know, Google version of Sahih al-Bukhari. Um, but it's not even worth going into the discussion. But this is, this is important that we understand. On a daily basis, he had told his son, who came later on work with him, that on a daily basis, you must give 10 dirham to the poor. Now, not everybody can afford this. Not everybody is able to do this. But again, something for us to learn. Either on a daily or a monthly basis from our salary, something should be going to the poor or the needy or any type of charity. And this brings barakah in the rest of the wealth. And these are lessons we can learn from these great individuals. Um, every Friday, Another good habit Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah had, every Friday he would give 20 dinar as sadaqah for the isal thawab of his parents. So that this would reach his marhum and late parents who had passed away. Again, a very noble act. And if we do this, 
you know, for our parents, when we go, our children will do it for us. So it's important that we try and develop such habits. We learn from these pious individuals and we try and implement and adopt ourselves as well. Um, he was a person who loaned money to many people and at the same time when he loaned money on one occasion, again, a story of his consciousness and how he was aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at all times. He had loaned somebody an amount of money and it was a very hot summer's day. And he passed by and the person who he had loaned money, um, he had a bit of shade. So the, the building of his house, there was some shelter. So Imam Abu Hanifa took shelter from beneath the shade or, uh, of the house of this individual who had borrowed money from Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. After a few moments, he realized that, hang on, I can't take this shade. And everybody else was under the shade in the shelter. He came out of the shade, he stood under the sun. And somebody asked him, why did you do this? And he said, there's a ruling in Sharia, the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ has said, every loan which derives some sort of extra benefit, this is usury, this is riba. I've given him a loan, and in return of that loan, I'm taking benefit. I'm taking some, he's going to give me the money back, but I'm taking benefit of the shape. Really, I mean, we wouldn't really consider that benefit. But I'm just trying to make you understand the level and the, the, the relationship he had with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how cautious these individuals were when it came to even their worldly rulings, their worldly rulings. So this was Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Now remember, he grew up as a businessman, he would be in the marketplace. Now the marketplace, like any other place, people would not just sit there and do their dealings, people would talk. Very important for us to understand that time doesn't allow and it's very difficult for us to go into technicalities. However, very briefly, I'm just going to mention that the era of Imam Abu Hanifa was a bit like the era of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah. How do I say this? There were many, many political fitnas. Many political fitnas took place. And many of the, 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 the verdicts that people pass, many of the judgments that are, 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 are passed, many of the comments people make are in light of this. You know, when there's a political fitna, it becomes very difficult depending on which side you take. Of course, there are extremes on both sides. And we know, you know, when we speak about Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, we understand what happened in those days and why he got involved. Similarly, Imam Abu Hanifa, you get two types of individuals, especially when it comes to the scholars. You'll get those who are silent, who won't involve themselves in the politics, and then you'll get the others who are vocal, who will speak up, who will actively take part. Neither of them are wrong. They're doing and serving the deen as they understand better. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, wasn't quiet. He was, he was vocal. He took part. He supported a party against another. And thus you find a lot of people trying to refute him. And when, you know, just before the time of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah reaching his peak was the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. We've already speak, spoken about him previously. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was the notorious bloodshedder who killed many, many great companions of the Prophet Many tabi'een. And there was a lot of politics that were taking place and then deen comes into it as well, unfortunately. And this is when people try and fabricate a hadith as well to try and prove their point. It's a very low and shallow thing to do, to fabricate a hadith, attributing it to the Messenger of Allah However, for their personal gains, people would do such a thing. Anyhow, may Allah give us the understanding. So, the marketplace was not only a place where buying and selling would take place, 
politics was also discussed religion was also discussed as well and general news was also discussed as well so imam abu hanifa rahimahullah being in that environment he would hear about what's going on he was up to date with the news everyone knew that if you wanted a solution go to him he'll be able to help you he'll know what's going on what's the latest he'll be up to date with it go and ask him and this is a time when uh, he was around the age of 20 when a great scholar who became famous with the name Ash-Sha'bi, Imam Ash-Sha'bi. His name wasn't Sha'bi. Sha'bi is what he became famous with. Sha'b or Sha'bi, what does it mean? Sha'bi means like, like a people's person, the people's Imam. He was an Imam who was like the people's Imam. Everyone loved him. You know, you get different types of people. So this Sha'bi was like a people's person. Everyone loved him. And he was very funny as well, very humorous. Even in his fatawa, although he was a great scholar, but even in his fatawa, he was very, very humorous. In, in, in his answers, he would give sometimes, he would make people laugh, he would joke with them, and people really liked him and got on with him. Um, and uh, somebody once came to him and asked him, that, uh, Imam, what is, the what is the name of Iblis's wife? What is the name of Iblis's wife? And Imam Shabi said, well, he didn't really invite me to his wedding, so I don't know. Uh, so, you know, they, they played along. He didn't just, you know, shout at him and scold him and say, what kind of question is this? Not like that. He, 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 he played along with them. He understood that, you know, it, it, it's a silly question. Let me give him a silly answer back as well. And they'll just laugh at it. So, you know, someone, he was walking with his wife. And somebody came and asked him, are you Shabi? And he said, no, 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 my wife is Shabi. Shabi meaning like popular. So no, she's more popular than I am. So this is how, um, these kind of people, when you become a people's person, unfortunately, people don't leave you alone. They pester you. Um, even at times when you, you know, you make it quite clear that now, you know, it's personal time. You need to give some space, me time. So he was in his house and people would keep coming and people would keep sort of disturbing him even in his own personal time when he wasn't there to answer questions. So he told his wife that come here. He took her to the front door. He took a pencil and he drew a circle on the front door. And what would happen is he told his wife that if anybody comes and knocks on the door and says, is Shabi here? Point to the circle, put your finger there and say, he's not here right now. He's not here, I meaning he's not in this circle right now. So this was Imam Ash-Sha'bi, uh, how he was a people's person. Anyhow, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, once, whilst he was in the market, Imam Sha'bi came past. He was about 20 years old at the time. Imam Sha'bi came past and he saw Imam Abu Hanifa, Nu'mad ibn Thabit is his name. And he called him. Now remember, Sha'bi is a very great popular scholar. And he called Abu Hanifa, Nu'mad ibn Thabit, and he said, who do you go to? Who do you go to? At the time, Nu'mad ibn Thabit, Imam Abu Hanifa, didn't really understand the question. He said, what do you mean, who do I go to? I come to the market, I go back home. This is my life. He goes, no, no, no. Who do you go to to study? <coughs> to study the ilm and the knowledge? He said, well, no one really. I don't really go to anyone to study the ilm and the knowledge. I do, I've not made like a formal agreement with any scholar to go and study by them. So Imam Shabi told Abu Hanifa Nu'mad ibn Thabit at this time, he said, don't let time go by in a manner in which you are heedless. Go and study ilm. Go and study ilm. Become a scholar of knowledge. Focus on ilm, accompany the ulama. I can see great potential in you. I can see great potential in you. You've got such qualities. If you pursue this career, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make you shine. Now, this is something we call positive encouragement. 
something that our youth really need, especially from the seniors. It's unfortunate that, you know, within our sort of Asian communities, we sort of are very negative. So if your son comes home with a B, right, it's like, why did you not get A star? Uh, instead of encouraging them, praising them and saying, mashallah, that's brilliant, that's really good. Um, you know, giving them sort of encouragement, it's like, no, no that's, that's, that, the, the guy next door, you know, he, he always gets A's. And your cousin from, you know, so-and-so place, he got A's as well. And your cousin's sister from here got A's, and why have you... This is, this is unfortunately our mentality. And then what happens is our youth, our children, they sort of, there's a gap. And it just gets larger and larger. And they totally switch off, they don't want to know anymore. Positive encouragement, positive encouragement, it takes a person very far. So he gave him some positive encouragement. Do you know the result of that positive encouragement was? That we can safely say that the legacy of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah goes totally to the credit of Imam al-Sha'bi. Today Imam al-Sha'bi is benefiting and reaping the fruits of every person that follows the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah through that positive encouragement. A few words can make a difference. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Sometimes, you know, a good word, a good word, a positive word is better than giving hundreds and thousands in charity. You could give hundreds in charity. Sometimes a good word could become millions. You could create so many people who will be givers into charity. So just a few good words change the life of this individual. So he asked, well, who should I go to? You're telling me to go and study the ilm and go and accompany the ulama. Who should I go to? So Imam al-Sha'bi said, well, it depends what you want to study. Do you want to study the hadith? He said, well, how, what do you mean studying the hadith? Well, he says, when you study the hadith, we don't just study the hadith. We study the chain of the narration and we look at the narrators. We do jarh and ta'deel and we look at, we scrutinize the whole chain. And the benefit of that is you understand the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said, what else can I study? He said, well, there's tafsir. You can understand the exegesis and the tafsir of the Quran. You can go deep into its meanings. And you could address the people and explain the Quran and the book of Allah to the people. He said, what else is there? He said, there's fiqh. He says, what is there in fiqh? How is fiqh? So he said, in regards to fiqh, he goes, you interact with the people. You go to the people, you understand your community and your society, then you come back to the book of Allah, you study the Quran, you study the hadith, and then you adapt this to the people. This is the fiqh. Fiqh isn't just something that was made up uh, by some imams. What is fiqh? It's, 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 it's a compilation of the Quran and Sunnah. It's the understanding of the Quran and Sunnah. That's what fiqh is. And then to apply it to our society. So, this is what he said. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah said, Yes, I would like to study fiqh. Imam al-Sha'bi told him, Well, I would recommend you go to a teacher of fiqh. His name is Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. And then Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman became the greatest teacher of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah initiated his studies with Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. Now, we're not going to go into the, the initial life of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. He did spend some time uh, in seeking and pursuing ilm al-kalam and the knowledge of aqidah. But then he realized that, every, that all that people are doing, remember this was a time of the khawarij. You know how we've got ISIS now? 
Okay, it's like anybody who doesn't agree with their ideology will just kill them. That's how they believe. They do takfir of everybody. So at that time, it wasn't any different. The khawarij were exactly the same. The khawarij were takfiris. They would make anybody who doesn't agree with their hardcore extremist views, they'd just go and kill them. They'd finish them off. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah realized that this aqidah bashing, which we'd call it today, aqidah bashing doesn't bring any good, does it? How many hours have some of us wasted on YouTube watching Aqidah bashing? Does it, get, does it get us anywhere? Have we achieved anything out of it? Is there anything beneficial from it? No. You make a video, somebody else makes a video. He, he says all that happens is one party is trying to call another party kafir. Is that nice? Is that good? Is that something fruitful? Are we getting anywhere with this? So he thought, I don't want to go down that route because that's exactly what was happening. There were two parties and people were going to study, people were furthering their knowledge, people were seeking guidance, but the intention was, the intention, why, are we, why were they studying, why were they learning, so we can go out and we can bash the other people. Okay, I can learn a few hadith, okay, and go and bash them that your salah is wrong and your fasting is wrong and your hajj is wrong and the way you perform this is wrong and your aqidah is wrong. What do you get out of this? Nothing at all. So he realized that I don't want to go into this. This is not the, the route I want to take. And we should avoid this. This is not fruitful. This doesn't really get anywhere. Another point I want to add on to this is it is possible in Islam to have something called ikhtilaf. Ikhtilaf. Ikhtilaf means difference of opinion. Amongst the Sahaba, there were ikhtilaf. And we've spoken about it in detail in our previous talks. There was some major ikhtilaf. Ikhtilaf means difference of opinion. Do you know what the beauty of ikhtilaf is? The beauty of ikhtilaf is you could have an opinion. I could have a total different opinion. We don't see eye to eye on this opinion whatsoever. However, the intention behind this opinion of why we've come to this inevitably leads us to the same goal. And that is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's desirable, that's fine. And we find this amongst the Sahaba. Why are the differences amongst the Imams? You know, Hadith Shaykh Rahmatullah, Shaykh Muhammad Zakariya, Nawarallah, Marqadawz has authored a very beautiful book on this topic. It's available in English as well. Differences of the Imams. The author of Fadail Amal has a very short book on this topic. Difference. Sometimes we might think, okay, why are the differences amongst the Imams? Okay, one Imam says do this, one Imam says do this, one Imam says do this. Well, because there were differences amongst the Sahaba. And why, why were the differences amongst the Sahaba? Because the Prophet ﷺ did do different things at different times. It's simple. And then he's given many, many reasons. The time is very short now to, for us to sort of go into all the details. But as a reference, that book is available and um, you, you, you can read it. It's very beneficial. Uh, I think it's called Differences of the Imams um, in, in, uh, in English. So anyhow, so he realized that these extremist um, Aqidah bashing groups are not bringing any good to the Ummah. So rather than this, he went and studied by Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. Um, one thing he didn't do was, he didn't give up his business. So as, alongside his studies and preaching to the people, he kept his business going as well. Um, so he had his teaching of fiqh, but he kept his business. He wanted to be, remain independent. And his view was that you can never learn true tawakkul until you don't engage yourself in business. That this was his belief. 
Once you're working for somebody, it's fine. I mean, you carry on getting paid. You go nine to five, it's fine. When you've got your own business, okay, when it's going well, it's fine. But when it's not going well, and then for them to still trust in Allah, that Allah will still provide for me. He says, only then you can realize and reach the true potential of, of how much tawakkal you have in you, in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he kept, kept it going. Not only that, he would buy clothes for his own students. So he would sort of, uh, you could say, sponsor his own students. He would give them scholarships. So he would pay them to come and study with him. And he would give them gifts, he would buy them clothes, he would clothe them nicely. And people would ask him that, why is it you and your students dress very nicely? And he would reply by saying, Allah says in the Quran, that if Allah has blessed you with a blessing, you should show it, make it apparent. Okay? He didn't want to seek people's sympathy and think, oh, this Mawlu is very, very poor, let's give him some of our zakat. Okay? He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that. So, number one, the first of his teachers was Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman al-Kufi. He was only nine years older than Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. He says, I stayed with him for 10 years. And after 10 years, I thought to myself, you know, now um, I should have my own circle. I've been, for 10 years, I've been quiet. I've been studying, studying, studying. You know, I should also have a circle as well. So he says, one day that thought came to me and with this thought, I left for the masjid. And I thought, when I enter into the masjid today, instead of me going to the circle of my teacher, I'll have my own circle and I will study, I will be the teacher. And he says, when I entered into the masjid and I saw my teacher, I forgot all my ideas and I went and sat in the gathering of uh, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman again. However, he says, on one occasion, there was a close family member of my teacher who had passed away and he had to be absent from the lessons that were being delivered. So in his absence, he requested me to take over the study circle. So he said, I began to conduct the circle of Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, my great teacher, in his absence. He says it was a period of two months. Two months he was away. In those two months, he says, there were 60 new questions which came, which I hadn't studied directly by my teacher, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. So he says, I answered 60 questions from people who asked these questions, and I wrote all of the answers down. I wrote the question and the answer down. And when he returned, I showed my teacher my 60 questions and the answers that I gave. He says, my teacher agreed with me on 40 of them on 40 of them and on 20 of them he didn't agree with me and I, I realized that you know what until my teacher's alive I'm going to carry on studying rather than having my own circle uh, it's better I carry on studying so he continued to study until the demise of uh, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman when Imam Abu Hanifa first came to the circle of Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman uh, he sat right at the back it was a new, new student Within a few days, the teacher realized the potential of the student, so he called him to the front, that you should sit at the front. After some more days passed, and he realized that this student is not only ordinary student, he's a very special student, he would seat him next to him and say, here, your place is over here, you should sit next to me. He would buy things for him, he made Imam Abu Hanifa Nu'man ibn Thabit his personal assistant, and Abu Hanifa, Nu'man ibn Thabit, would do the shopping for his teacher and he would bring the things for him. And he said, the visitors would say that we would so see him going in and out of the house of his teacher, helping him. The teacher would say to him, you don't need to do this. 
I'm not asking your services. But he was very, very committed to the teacher to the extent he would stand at the door of the teacher. Anybody who had a question, he became like his personal secretary. Anybody had a question for Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman, they would ask Abu Hanifa first. He would take in the question, he would give him the answer, and then he would relay the answer back to them. So through this, he accompanies his teacher for a very long time. When Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman went to Basra for the janazah of a close family member, he was crying. And family members, when they asked him, that, are you okay, you are crying? He says, I'm not crying on, on the demise of our relative. He says, why are you crying? He said, I'm missing Abu Hanifa. I miss my student, Nu'man ibn Thabit. I'm missing Nu'man ibn Thabit. This is why I am crying. Nu'man ibn Thabit lived only seven blocks away from his teacher. Seven blocks away. However, out of respect, he never stretched his feet towards the house of his teacher. And similarly, he did not answer the call of nature towards the house of his Now somebody would think that, you know, why, why the need to do that? You know, we find people putting the Quran on the floor today. You know, a great scholar in Masjid Nabawi, he's a teacher in Masjid Nabawi, Sheikh uh, Shantidi, who's a Salafi scholar. Um, very, he's very well accepted and a great pious individual. He delivers lectures regularly in Masjid Nabawi. And very recently he gave a talk on this topic. And he says, people place the Quran on the floor He's addressing people in Masjid Nabawi. And he said, people place the Quran on the floor. And then when you tell them why, they say, well, where is the dalil, akhi, that you can't put it on the floor? He said, is this something you ask a dalil for? Isn't it common sense? Like, why, why would you want to do something like that? Why would you? Do you really need to be told that this is the book of Allah? It deserves to be respected. And Quran says, That respecting and honoring the symbols of Allah is, is part of taqwa, is part of honoring Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You wouldn't do that. You, it's not, that's not something you do. So this was the respect he had for his teacher. And it says that every time he prayed for his own parents, he always prayed for his teacher as well. The teacher passed away at the age of 49, which made Imam Abu Hanifa how old? 40. Only 40 years old. And without any objection, you know when a sheikh passes away, you know, there's a major fight. Because who's going to take over then? Who's going to take over next? And this is everywhere throughout the world, in all fields. Like, everyone's just worried, like, if when, when, the, when the head goes, like, who, what's going to happen? But here it wasn't like that. Without any objection, everyone knew that the rightful person to take the seat of Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman in, in, in Kufa is definitely without a doubt uh, Abu Hanifa, um, Nu'man ibn Thabit, that's his original name. I keep saying Abu Hanifa. Um, there are many, many different um, reasonings scholars have given of why he was called Abu Hanifa. And again, we're not going to go into all of them. But some of them have said that, um, that Hanif means ink. And father of the ink, meaning he used to write a lot. So some have said that this is why he was a scholar. He was a true scholar. This is why he was given this nickname. Other reasons have been given as well. Anyway, so Imam Abu Hanifa, he didn't stop. He didn't think, okay, my teacher's passed away. I'm going to stop studying now. No, he continued to study. So he studied by Imam Shabi, the Shabi we mentioned earlier. And he also studied by Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, rahmatullah alayhi, a great individual. Okay. It's difficult to go into the lives of each of these individuals and explain the caliber and who these individuals were. You know, all of these people, you know, Imam Bukhari comes later on. Remember, 
Imam Bukhari comes nearly 200 years after the Prophet Imam Abu Hanifa came nearly 80 years after the Prophet So this is way before that. So Imam Abu Hanifa really, he himself, his Imam Abu Hanifa's students are the teachers of Imam Bukhari. Okay, you need to see it that way. You need to see it in that light. And so Ibrahim al nafai Ata ibn Abi Rabah, Imam Abu Hanifa did not only stay in Iraq, he traveled to Mecca. He stayed in Mecca for many, many years. The benefit is Imam Abu Hanifa was quite universal. He was exposed to all types of scholars. He wasn't rigid in his way. He, he had taken benefit from everybody. He'd been to Mecca. He studied by Atta ibn Abi Rabah. He went to Medina Munawwara. He studied by Nafi'. Nafi' was the freed slave of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhu. So you're studying directly by a student of a student of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Of course, Imam Abu Hanifa was a tabi'i as well. From amongst the four Imams, he's the only Imam who was actually a tabi'i, meaning he saw and accompanied a sahabi and a companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Also, he studied by Sa'id ibn Jubair as well, and also Ja'far al-Sadiq. Now, when we say Ja'far al-Sadiq, um, straight away you think of Shia, okay? The, the Sunni Jafar Sadiq, okay, the Sunni Jafar Sadiq, he's a great Imam. He's a teacher of all four Imams. He was a great individual, a great scholar. Um, he's a narrator of hadith as well. Okay, and the Shias also refer to Jafar Sadiq, but in a very different light, very different narrations. So when I say Jafar Sadiq, we shouldn't think, oh, this person now is Shia. No. Imam Jafar Sadiq was a great Imam. He was from the, uh, the Ahlul Bayt of the family of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And in his own right, he was, an, uh, he was a scholar of the Ahlul Sunnah. He was a person of the Ahlul Sunnah. If somebody comes later and hijacks him, that's not our issue. Um, but he was a great person. Um, Again, like I said, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, spent a number of years in Mecca. Again, we'll come later on why and how he ended up in Mecca. Um, but the years that he was in Mecca, it was very common that at night time, any time in the night you entered the haram of Mecca, you would always see two people doing tawaf. At any time. You go any time in the night, there would be two people you'd always find performing tawaf. And one of them was Sufyan al-Thawri. And the other was Abu Hanifa. These people were so dedicated, he performed Hajj 55 times. Wow. 55 times. Not because he was like the group leader or something, and he was taking a Hajj group every year. No, from himself, he was, he was performing Hajj. He actually did it from himself. Consciously, 55 times he went and performed Hajj. Um, and that's like nearly annually. And you know, at those times, even today, like going for Hajj, meaning he was really, really exposed to all types of scholars. He benefited not only from those who were in Kufa. Even Kufa, I mean, this is coming back to that point where some people mentioned that he wasn't a person of Hadith. Meaning, in Kufa alone, um, if I'm not wrong, there were around 1,500 Sahaba who'd gone and settled there. Now imagine being from a place where there are so many Sahaba, from amongst them, the main companion whose teachings uh, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah benefited from the most was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. And the school, the Hanafi school is actually built on this. 
on, on, on a lot of the verdicts and the sayings of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, which he took directly from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But it wasn't only that. When he was in Makkah, he was able to benefit from the hundreds and thousands of scholars that would travel from different regions and parts of the world um, whilst he was there for his number of years. It says regarding him uh, that um, people would call him the pillar, the pillar, meaning uh, when he would stand in prayer, he was like a pillar. It just became common. You know, sometimes when you know, people become famous like this, then all these false rumors start spreading as well. People start putting you know, their own sort of masala on here as well and adding stories and fabricating things. So some people, you know, it became famous that Imam Abu Hanifa, you know, he doesn't sleep all night and he performs fajr with the wudu of Isha. Now, whether that's true or not, only Allah knows. But these people started saying this and this became common knowledge. Once Imam Abu Hanifa was passing by and there were two elderly ladies talking amongst themselves and he overheard their conversation. One said, do you know who that is? said, who is that? That's Imam Abu Hanifa. Yeah, okay. Do you know, do you know about him? He spends the whole night in prayer and he does the Fajr Salah with the Wudu of Isha. Now, Imam Abu Hanifa never used to do this at that time. He did pray. He did make Qiyamul Layl. He was very punctual in his Ibadah. But this is, he wasn't, he wasn't doing this. When he heard this and he realized, is this what people expect of me? And really, this is not true. This is not true about me. From then on, it says that he committed to this. He committed to this. I don't want to be known by something which I don't do. And we find this dua amongst the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allahumma la tu'akhidni bima yaqoolun. Waghfirli ma la ya'lamun. Amazing dua. Allahumma la tu'akhidni bima yaqoolun. Waghfirli ma la ya'lamun. Oh Allah, do not hold me accountable for the things that people, the good things that people say about me. They don't really know me. People praise me, people say good things. But they don't really, Allah, don't hold me accountable. People used to consider me a person of taqwa. A person close to you, a person of ibadah. Allah, you know how I am. Waghfirli ma la ya'lamun. I know Allah, please forgive me in regards to the things that they don't know. There's a dark side to me that people don't know. Allah, please forgive me. In this was a dua they used to make to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyhow, in Tabaqat ibn Sa'ad, there's an incident. Imam Abu Hanifa once was in a masjid. And the Imam in the masjid in Isha Salah, he recited Surah Al-Zilzal. إِذَا زُلْزِلَتِ الْأَرْضُ زِلْزَالَهَا وَأَخْرَجَتِ الْأَرْضُ أَثْقَالَهَا وَقَالَ الْإِنسَانُ مَا لَهَا So Allah speaks about يَوْمُ الْقِيَامَةِ And he concludes by saying فَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ خَيْرًا يَرَى وَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ شَرًا يَرَى If you do an atom worth of good, Allah will show you this on the Day of Judgment. If you do an atom worth of evil, Allah will show you this on the Day of Judgment. After the Salah, it says that Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah began to cry. He was crying in the Salah. Salah finished, he was making dua. He was holding his beard and he was pleading to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he was saying, Oh Allah, forgive Nu'man ibn Thabit. Forgive Nu'man ibn Thabit. Oh Allah, you are the one who is going to show every good deed and every bad deed. Do not hold me to task. The caretaker of the masjid waited. He waited, everybody left. And he says, I was waiting. I was thinking when he finishes, okay, I can blow out the candles and I can lock the masjid and come back just before Fajr Salah. He says, I waited and waited and it seemed like he wasn't going to finish anytime soon. So I thought, let me leave him. I'll leave the masjid today. And he left. He says, I came just before Fajr to call out the Adhan. And when I entered into the masjid, 
I saw Abu Hanifa still crying in that position, holding his beard, crying for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, remembering the verses for me, Ya'mal mithqala dharratin khayran yara, or may Ya'mal mithqala dharratin sharran yara. You know, we find other incidents that, you know, he, and he, he went and told him that, do you know what time it is? Abu Hanifa says, no, I don't know what time. He says, it's nearly Fajr time. I've come to call the Adhan. The entire night has passed by. And you have been in this condition. Now, if you and I were there, quickly, Snapchat time. This is a moment, you know, everybody should find out. You know, when we get to the Kaaba, the Ihram is on, the Kaaba is there. You know, just kiss the Hajr al-Aswad. Do you know what Imam Abu Hanifa said? He, he grabbed onto this Mu'addin and caretaker and he said, don't tell anybody. Okay, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Do you know what the caretaker did? He went and told everybody. <laughs> okay, the fastest way to spread any type of news is go and tell somebody, don't tell anybody. Okay, you, you, guaranteed, guaranteed, guaranteed. He went and told everybody and that's how we know today. So, there's many things we can speak about, about this great individual. You know, the tolerance, the tolerance he had. You know, when people become... When people become of this caliber, obviously they have to go through a lot as well. A simple person, when you're a simple person and somebody ridicules you, it, it doesn't really matter. You're not, you're not anyone special, you're a Mr. Nobody. But when you become a somebody and then somebody ridicules you, um, it, 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 it's, it's a bit more difficult. When Imam Abu Hanifa became the great Imam, at that time on one occasion he was giving a lesson, a lecture in the masjid. And as he was delivering his lecture, he mentioned, he mentioned a statement. And he said, Akhta al-Hasan. He said, Hassan made a mistake. Which Hassan is this referring to? Anybody? Which Hassan is this referring to? <coughs> Hassan Basri. Yeah, Hassan Basri. So he, he, he's, he's saying, uh, Hassan Basri, um, he committed an error, he made a mistake, and he just said this and somebody stood up in the gathering. And you generally get this in a lot of masjids where, you know, the khatib is speaking and somebody just stands up and says something. Alhamdulillah, we don't have that here yet. Let's not start it off. Anyway, so, <laughs> he, he said, Akhtar al-Hasan, and this person stood up, and he addressed Imam Abu Hanifa in the crowd of thousands. And he said to him, Yabnu Zaniya or the son of a Zaniya, an adulteress. And he said, you, you're saying Akhta al-Hasan, that Hassan made a mistake? You're not even worth the dust beneath the feet of Hassan Basri. How dare you say something like this? Imam Abu Hanifa looked at him, he smiled, and he carried on what he was going to say. And he says, Akhta al-Hasan, Hassan Basri made a mistake in saying that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said this. Like, he didn't even allow him to finish the sentence. Imam Wanifa was tolerant, he didn't tell him off, he ignored him. But he, was, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to say that Hassan Basri made a mistake. He was trying to say that Hassan Basri made an error in, in terms of saying that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said this. So he wasn't really pointing out a, a major mistake or a flaw on part of Hassan Basri. He was saying that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, this, this attributing this to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud wasn't correct uh, 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 on this occasion. And this was the tolerance he had, he didn't really give him an answer. Abdullah ibn Mubarak rahmatullah again a great individual, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, the great muhaddith. He says that I, he told once, he said to Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah, regarding Abu Hanifa, he says, I have never heard Abu Hanifa backbiting anybody, never. And he says, to the extent I've never even heard him backbite his opponents. He had many opponents. 
I've never ever heard him backbiting any of his opponents. Sufyan al-Thawri said, you know Abu Hanifa, he was too smart. He was too smart to backbite anybody. Why would he want to waste his good deeds? He had amassed so many good deeds. Why would he want to waste his good deeds on his opponents? Imam al-Zahabi, he has narrated a very interesting incident regarding the neighbor of Imam Abu Hanifa, speaking about his tolerance. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, the neighbor. This neighbor was a drunkard. So each night he would come home, he would be drunk. And at that time, you know, you know, nowadays we have whatever, the music's playing loud, and you can imagine, you know, rowdy neighbors, you know, it'd be difficult to sort of live with. So Imam Abu Hanifa would be disturbed by this neighbor, he'd be drunk every night, he'd be screaming, he'd be shouting, and all sorts of things would be going on. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, was very, very tolerant. He never said anything to him. And in the night, this uh, drunkard would always scream and shout, and he would say, Ada'uni, 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 Ada'uni. Meaning like, they've abandoned me, they've abandoned me. They were, obviously, his family had abandoned him. His friends had abandoned him because of how he was, because of his drink, drinking problem. So he had no friends, he had nobody whatsoever. So he would say this, Ada'uni, Ada'uni. He would continue to say this, that people have abandoned me, there's no one for me, who's going to be with me, there's no one to look after me. And then he would fall asleep like this. And Imam Abu Hanifa, all throughout the night, he had to put up with this screaming and the shouting of this drunkard. Anyhow, on one occasion, Imam Abu Hanifa noticed one night that he didn't hear the screams of Ada'uni, Ada'uni. For one night, for two nights, for three nights, he became concerned. He went to the Khalifa Abu Jafar and he went and asked, that, where is my neighbor? What's happened to him? So they said that we've had to put him in prison. He has been borrowing money of people and he's amassed to 85,000 dirham and he's not been able to pay it back. So he's been prisoned. So Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, he said to Abu Jafar, I will take responsibility for this. Free him, I will pay the 85,000. And when he called, he came out and he saw you, meaning you're the neighbor that I've given trouble for, the, for so many years, I've been troubling you. And you've come to me, and Abu Hanifa said to him, you were saying, Ada'uni, Ada'uni, they've abandoned me. He said, who's abandoned you? I've not abandoned you. I've not abandoned you. Imam al-Dhahabi has written that this person became one of the people of the front saf. This person became one of the people of the front saf in the masjid. Um, so this was Imam Abu Hanifa, that he, he, he wasn't just uh, you know, an Imam who was not connected to the community. He was, he was a, person, a, a people's person, very down to earth, very <coughs> humble, and you know, he was very, very intelligent as well. People would come and ask him, Masail, as you know, there are many, many incidents, very, very intellectual. He knew how to answer people. Sometimes he was funny as well. Somebody came to him and said, I've lost a large amount of money. Give me some advice, what should I do? He says, go to your house, perform salah, keep performing salah until you find it. So he went home, performed salah, two rakats, he came back, he found it. He says, how did you find it? He goes, when I started my salah, um, he just came to me, because yeah, I knew, as soon as you start salah, shaitan's going to tell you. All sorts of thoughts are going to come to your mind. So I told you, go and perform salah. Anyhow, so the students of Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he worked on them. Imam Abu Hanifa was a great man himself. And he... He taught his students in such a way, the students of Abu Hanifa studied by him in such a manner that not only did they remain students, but they became Ashab. Ashab were his companions, meaning he had a whole team. So the Hanafi school is not a one-man band. Do you understand? When people say, oh, Imam Hanifa, no. 
He wasn't like that. There was a whole team of scholars. And a lot of his students, from amongst his students, he says about 36 of them, reached this stage of being ashab. Meaning, they would now discuss and argue masail with Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. To the extent that our madhab of the Hanafi madhab is not just based on the verdicts of Imam Abu Hanifa. No, no. Of course, it is based on many of his verdicts. But also we take the verdicts of his students as well. Many of our followings that we have, those who are followers of the Hanafi Madhab, many of the things and the rulings that we follow, they are the, from the verdicts of Imam Abu Yusuf. Some being the verdicts of Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. Sometimes the students of Abu Hanifa differed with him totally. Then they said, no, we hold a different opinion. So it's, it's a whole school. It's not a one-man team where he was him and you become like, if you're a Hanafi, that's it. You're like blind. They say it's blind following. How can you, how can you follow, how can you practice anything without getting guidance from anybody? Tell me who does not do taqlid. How can you do anything without doing taqlid? What is taqlid? You have to do taqlid. If you don't do taqlid of Abu Hanifa, or of Imam Malik, or Imam Shafi'i, or Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, you'd be doing taqlid of somebody, whether it's Ibn Taymiyyah, whether it's Ibn Al-Qayyim, whether it's Bin Baz, whether it's Uthaymin, whether it's Saleh Fawzan, or whether it's going to be Albani, or you're going to go try and get Bukhari itself. Well, you're going to, everyone has to do some sort of taqlid of somebody. It's not possible not to do taqlid. It's, 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 it's weird when people sort of say that oh, if you do taqlid, you're doing shirk and you're following Abu Hanifa, you have to follow the Quran and Sunnah. Well, did Imam Abu Hanifa follow anything else besides the Quran and the Sunnah? And would we expect that from somebody like the ranks of Imam Abu Hanifa? Similarly, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmad al-Hanbal. And there were not only four Imams. There were many, many Imams. However, these four became more popular. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it such. Even from amongst the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, one of the greatest students was Imam Zufar. Imam Zufar was uh, one of, the, you could say, the greatest student. But he passed away very soon after Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, uh, because of which we don't really hear much about him. We don't hear much about him. Anyhow, so these were the uh, ashab, the contemporaries and people who he sort of, kept in his own circle, who reached that stage that they were mujtahideen themselves and jurists themselves. Many of his students reached the stage of being a qadi, a judge. Um, you had six of them who became mujtahids and imams amongst themselves. And then you ha he said that there are two of my students who have surpassed me. And one of them he re referred to as Imam Zufar. The other one he referred to as Imam Abu Yusuf. Uh, and just like Imam Abu Hanifa has many of his verdicts, Imam Abu Yusuf also has um, just as many verdicts as well in the Hanafi school. Um, from amongst the students of Imam Abu Hanifa, people are recognized through their students. You want to know how great a teacher is, you look at their students. Who are their teachers? Who are their students? Nowadays, we don't look at anything. We just, we, we just like the way they talk on, on, on YouTube and think, wow, this guy's a great sheikh. Okay, who are his teachers? Does he have a chain going back to the Prophet It's not like the, the, the special effects in the background. You know, a lot of times, you know, you, you've got a YouTube clip on the special effects in the background. Well, the special effects, they're fake anyway. They're not true. Okay, it's the, it's the message, what's being delivered, who it is. And in Islam, we have something very strong, which is chain of narration. Okay, where has it come from? Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, our scholarship goes directly back to the Prophet 
in our fiqh as well. Every aspect of the Hanafi Salah, and the Shafi'i Salah, and the Maliki Salah, and the Hanbali Salah, you could record it back. It's not just been made up. It's not just based on logic. Okay? There's a reasoning, there's a, there's a Quranic verse, there's a Hadith. It's all based on Quran and Sunnah. You know, sometimes, you know, people are made to sort of think that um, this is, it's not from the Sunnah. Where else is it from? You know, a person who's been so cautious in regards to his personal life, his family life, his business life, his outside life. You think they're going to tamper with the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? You know, these people were, were, were close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They understood the deen of Allah much better than we did. They were from the best of times. Um, so Imam Abu Yusuf, his real name was Yaqub ibn Ibrahim. Yaqub ibn Ibrahim, at a very young age, he came into the company of Abu Hanifa. Um, his mother cried and said, you know, my son has left me to go and study. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullah alayhi, uh, he funded not only Abu Yusuf, but his entire family for 10 years so that he could study with him. He studied with him and after him studying with him, you know what he did? He sent him and he said, go now go and study by Imam Malik. So amongst the Imams, there was a good mutual understanding as well. The love, the respect, mutual understanding. At the end of the day, if somebody likes to do raf'ul yadain, and another person doesn't do raf'ul yadain, or somebody says amin loudly, and a person doesn't say amin loudly, I ask you this question. Both of them are from the sunnah. Nobody disputes that. But is this a cause? Is, should this be a cause of fighting? <laughs> Can I hate somebody because of this? This is, this is where it becomes problematic. How can you hate somebody using the deen of Allah? We're using the deen to spread hatred. How can you, how can you hate somebody for practicing a sunnah? So just like, for example, those who do raf'ul yadayn. Imam Bukhari rahimahullah, you know this raf'ul yadayn. I'm mentioning this because people make it into a big issue. It's not. It's not really a big issue. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, throughout his life, he raised his hands in certain parts of the salah. And there are also narrations from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud which are sahih, which are authentic, which are in the books of hadith, where he only raised his hands in the beginning, and throughout the salah he didn't. Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik are of the opinion that when you perform your salah, you raise your hands in the beginning, rest of the salah you don't. It's not their own opinion. When I say it's their opinion, it's not their opinion. They've taken this from the sunnah. The other Imams have looked at other ahadith, which are also hadith, and they have preferred the other view, where the Prophet ﷺ raised his hands at other times. He did both of them. Now, by you following one of these, that doesn't make you a mushrik, that, oh, you're not following Allah and His Rasul, you're following Him. No, you're following their methodology, because you don't know any better. It's a school of thought, it's a way of, it's, it's a thought process. They've scrutinized all the evidences and put together for you. You and I were not capable to do this. You know, you don't go to, you don't prescribe, when you become ill, we don't prescribe ourselves with our own medication. You go to the doctor. Somebody goes to the doctor, oh, you're doing taqlid of the doctor, you're mushri. Okay, we don't do that, do we? Yeah? So exactly in the same way, when it comes to the deen of Allah, we need to be much more particular. Okay, I can't go to the mechanic when I've got a headache. Okay. So exactly in the same way, we are not professionals in that field. These people mastered it. And not only, you know, just look at who, who, who came after them. These great, great individuals. You know, we always speak about Aqidah Tahawiyah, Aqidah Tahawiyah, Aqidah Tahawiyah, okay? This Aqidah, Aqidah Rububiyah. Who was Imam Tahawi? Imam Tahawi was a great Hanafi. 
Imam Tahawi was a great Hanafi. And then you're teaching his Aqeedah, but then saying that anybody who's a Hanafi has got a problem with his Aqeedah as well. It doesn't make sense. So sometimes we need to take a step back and understand the issue. So Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, one of his great students was Imam uh, Yusuf. Another great student of his was Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani, um, who was only 18 years old when Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, passed away. He came to him at a very young age. Um, and he is the one who actually uh, spread the school of Imam Abu Hanifa um, the most. In his time, he wrote six major books. And this is where the madhab and the school of thought of the Hanafi school of thought spread uh, more and more throughout the world. Imam al-Shafi'i used to say regarding Imam Abu Hanifa that all of us are dependent. Uh, in fiqh, we are all dependent on the knowledge of Abu Hanifa. If it wasn't for Abu Hanifa, we would have not known how to derive these rulings uh, in the manner that we do in terms of fit. Every school that came after him benefited from Imam Abu Hanifa's teachings. And you find all the links. There are graphs made which show you how they're all interlinked and they all benefit from each other. Like I said, Imam Bukhari's teachers are Hanafis. Yeah, <laughs> if, that, if that gives a bit more credibility and, and you know, removes some misconceptions. Um, Sufyan al-Thawri, rahimahullah, being a great muhaddith himself, would honor and praise Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. There, were there was some misunderstanding between Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Malik. Sometimes misunderstandings occur because two people have never met each other. And this is very common, even today as well. There's misunderstandings between two individuals, right? You've ne they've never had a chance to speak. It's just all hearsay. People have been saying things, rumors. But when they speak, they meet, they think, oh, we never had a difference. It was, it, was, it was a misunderstanding. Imam Malik had some reservations in regards to Imam Hanifa rahimahullah. But when they met, okay, he says sometimes they would sit in a room. And when they would leave, they would be sweating when they would come out. Because they were both mountains of knowledge. But then they would praise each other. And one would say about the other that he is the greatest Imam. The other would say, no, he is the greatest Imam. So the, the misconceptions were removed. And Imam Abu Hanifa sent two of his best students, Abu Yusuf, and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani to Imam Malik and said, go and study by him as well. Go and study by him as well. Abdullah bin Mubarak rahmatullah was a Hanafi himself and he was a great Hadith scholar. And he actually compiled all the narrations he had heard, Hadith narrations from Imam Abu Hanifa. And he actually called this book Nu'man. There was a great Imam called Imam al-Awza'i. He had a lot of reservations with Imam Abu Hanifa. Again, misunderstandings, never met and a lot of misunderstandings. So Abdullah bin Mubarak rahmatullah alayh, being a great muhaddith, okay, we find his name in, in the books of hadith, he was a Hanafi, and he had compiled this book, got together the, the ahadith he had heard from Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, he called this Nu'man, and he sent this to Imam al-Awza'i, and he said, read this. Imam al-Awza'i, for three days, he read this, it was a very thick compilation, he read this. And then Abdullah bin Barak rahmatullah said, what do you think about the person who wrote this? This ahadith. He said, this is a great individual. Amazing person. A person of great intellect and caliber. Very real. He said, who, who is it? Is this the same person who you've had many reservations? Without meeting the person, without knowing anything about him, this is Imam Abu Hanifa. He says, is it true? This is Imam Abu Hanifa's book. He said, it seems he is a person of great caliber and a great honorable person. Similarly, we find, I told you about the political situation. 
the Banu Umayyah were ruling, ruling at the time and there was a revolt against them uh, because of the malpractices that were find, found in the Banu Umayyah at the time. Now Imam Hanifa, like many other scholars, scholars had a choice to remain silent but he didn't. He supported the revolt and he, uh, he supported them, he would speak up against them because of which um, Ibn al-Hira, he actually uh, imprisoned Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. He had to stay in prison. Uh, after he came out of prison, and the persecution continued. And when he saw there was danger, he fled to Makkah al-Mukarrama. He stayed in Makkah for six years. That's when he benefited from Atta ibn Abi Rabah and the other scholars of Makkah. And later on, the Abbasids, they succeeded uh, and they took over the Umayyads. And they succeeded in the revolt against the Umayyads when he thought it was safe to come back to Kufa, to Iraq. Imam Abu Hanifa, he came back to Iraq. And the first Khalifa of the Abbasids was a person by the name of, name of Abu al-Abbas al-Saffah. You know what Saffah means? <coughs> Saffah like, you know, the bloodshedder kind of thing. So he was, it wasn't his name initially, but anybody who didn't agree with him, he was quite extreme as well. This happened later on. For four years, he was the Khalifa. And then after him came Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, very famous name. Abu Ja'far al-Mansur was a bit different because he was quite knowledgeable. He was quite knowledgeable. However, he was very paranoid. As a Khalifa, he was very, very paranoid. A little bit like some of the Muslim countries today. So he'd send spies everywhere. If he heard anybody saying anything bad about the government in any way, he'd like finish them off. He'd even mutilate them. He, like, he wouldn't tolerate anything. So there were spies everywhere. Anyone said anything bad about Abu Ja'far al-Mansur and the Khilafah, that's it. They were like finished off. Um, and it was during that time he had some sort of argument with his wife because he kept on marrying. He had uh, multiple wives. His wife wasn't happy whatsoever. And they had a dispute. So they called Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. And he said, look, you know, we've got this dispute amongst us. We want you to solve it. Um, so she said, what's the problem? So the wife said, well, my husband, he keeps marrying. Um, you know, he go, keeps going off and marrying different women. And Abu Jafar said, well, doesn't Allah say in the Quran, Oh Imam, how many wives are we allowed to have? Now, Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he had to be quite diplomatic here as well. He's dealing with this uh, Khalifa, who is known as, you know, uh, he, he's quite notorious in his way as well. So he said, well, how many wives is, is, is a man allowed to have according to the Quran? Uh, Abu Hanifa, rahmatullah, they replied, well, you're allowed to have four wives. But then the wife spoke up and said, well, uh, doesn't Quran say that if you can't look after four of them, and you're being oppressive, and you can't maintain them, then only one. And he says, yes, Quran does say that. And the wife goes, well, you know, there you go. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not able to maintain the peace. And the Quran says, if you can't, فَوَاحِدَةً You stick to one. Quran says this, and many people don't know this. People quote one way, but then Quran also says that if you can't keep the balance between all of them and be just and fair to all of the others, فَوَاحِدَةً Quran says, just stick to one. Just stick to one. So then what happens is when he returns, the wife of Abu Ja'far al-Mansur sends camels loaded with gifts for Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, like thank you for your answer. And he sends it all back and he says, I don't want any of this. I don't want any of this. And he sometimes, even in his address, public address, he would say certain things which could potentially get him into trouble. But he wasn't one of those that would stay quiet because he didn't take from them, he could speak. You know, many times in the masajid, uh, uh, many of the imams sometimes they're quiet because obviously they can't say anything. But he didn't take anything from them, so he was open. He said, deal with these leaders, okay, like the fire. Deal with them like the fire. What does it mean, deal with them like the fire? Meaning you've got fire, 
Okay? You take benefit from it, you take the heat. Don't go too close. Don't go too close. And sometimes some of his comments did get him into a bit of trouble. Anyhow, um, Abdullah ibn al-Hassan al-Muthanna, a great scholar of hadith who was there at the time, he again was tortured by the Khalifa. He was tortured by the Khalifa, he was put in jail, he was beaten, he was paraded, and he was later on uh, tortured by the Khalifa. As I mentioned, Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, spoke out against this. Imam Abu Hanifa once again was imprisoned for the second time. He was tortured, some say he was even given poison. And not soon after this, this is how he passed away as well. Some say he passed away in prison, some say he passed away as he left the prison. So. There was a lot of politics going on at the time and Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, like the other great scholars and we hear about prophets as well, how they were persecuted. One of the wasiyah and the will Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullah, left behind was, when I do die, do not bury me in a place which has been occupied unjustly and do not bury me in a land which has been bought by interest or usury. He passed away in the year 150 after Hijri and it says his janazah was performed like six times and in each of the janazas, there were like 50,000 people in each of the janazas. Now, just looking at the janazah, you could see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honored him. There's a hadith which says that if three row of people pray on a person, that's sufficient for his forgiveness. One hadith mentioned if 100 people pray on you, it's a sign of your forgiveness. He had like multiple, and on the other side, you know, people like me and you can you know, say things uh, derogatory about such great individuals. Allah give us the opinion to understand. Um, so he was the only Imam who actually didn't write his own book as such. He did compile things, but not as like this is the book of Abu Hanifa and his whole madhab. It was more done by his students and that spread on later on. Remember, a madhab is not just a set of opinions. This is something important to understand. It's not just a set of opinions. It's a whole set of principles. It's a set of principles and a methodology. That they use this methodology uh, to try and understand the Quran and the Sunnah and the rulings. Very briefly, I'm going to mention before we end, very briefly, I'm going to mention the methodology of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullahi. Without making it too technical, this can get a bit technical, it's a technical issue, uh, it's for the scholars, but I'm just going to try and very simply mention the methodology, and we'll speak on the different Imams when we speak about them, how they differed in their methodology of deriving the rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. Um, the methodology of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah was number one, the first thing he would do was he would his first source was the Quran. He was very strong on this. And he, he kept the ruling of the verses, the, the general rulings, he, he, he used them rather than the specific uh, meanings. He kept the general meanings of the Quran and he would stick to this and he was quite strong on this. This is why there were certain occasions where he differed uh, from the other three Imams as well because he would stick to the general ruling and he would apply the general ruling rather than looking at specific circumstances. Um, so this was his first resource. When he was to take a ruling, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, and not just him, the Hanafi school of thought, the way it works is the first thing you look at is Quran. So anything you find in the Hanafi school of thought is gone through this process. The Salah, okay, it's gone through this process. The first thing which is looked at is Quran, Quran. The second thing which is looked at is Hadith. The Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah was very strict in accepting Hadith and making sure it was authentic. 
Why? Because it was a time when ahadith were fabricated. Why were they fabricated? I told you political reasons. There was a lot of political fitna. So at that time, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, now remember, ahadith, the less the chain of narrations, the more accepted and higher the hadith is considered. Now between Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa there wasn't much of a gap. So he was very close to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa era. And there were many, many, many thousands of ahadith around at that time. I told you there were 1,500 sahaba who had settled in Kufa. And majority of the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa come from the great sahabi Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. Who was Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu? One of the greatest companions. One of the greatest and the closest companions. Some sahaba used to think Abdullah ibn Mas'ud is from Ahlul Bayt. That's how close he was to the Prophet Some Sahaba say, whenever we saw the Prophet whenever we went to his house, we would always see Abdullah ibn Mas'ud Very, very close. From a young age, very close to the Prophet So the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa is taken major from uh, uh, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud Abu Musa Ash'ari and Ali ibn Abi Talib These three great Sahaba. And we find that in the time of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, he knew many ahadith, of course he did. Without knowing the ahadith, how, how did he derive the madhab? How was the madhab derived without knowing hadith? It's impossible. Uh, however, later on, remember when it comes to hadith, this is a bit technical, try and simplify as much as possible. When we speak about the authenticity and the weakness of a hadith, it's not the actual hadith we're talking about, it's the chain of narration. It's the chain of narration which could be problematic. Okay? So there were many, many ahadith at the time of the Prophet sorry, at the time of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, which were well known, which were authentic. Later on what happened was, some of these narrations, because of the chain of narration, and the narrators that were narrating it, there were certain weak individuals narrating those narrations later on were deemed weak. But in the time of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, those who narrated it and how it reached to him, it reached to him in a most perfect manner. They were fine, they were totally authentic. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's getting a bit technical. Yeah? So this is uh, his methodology when it comes to uh, hadith. And Yahya ibn Ma'in, again a great scholar, he praised him regarding Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. He said he's thiqatun thiqa, like extremely trustworthy individual. I didn't say that there were people who didn't criticize him, like who doesn't get criticized today? There were people who did speak up against him, but then you find many who spoke highly of him, uh, amongst them being great scholars as well. Thereafter, he would take the qawl of Sahaba. Um, the verdicts of the Sahaba, I told you which Sahaba uh, we, the Hanafi Madhab has benefited the most from. And from amongst these great Sahaba, we find Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. And thereafter, we find number four is something we call Qiyas. And that's analogy and reasoning. reasoning. Again, this is not just based on what you feel like. Okay, you again look at the Quran, you look at the Sunnah, you look at the wording of the Sahaba, and that particular scenario, you would apply it. Um, just like Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud anhu, he applied a scenario um, of a pregnant woman. There's a pregnant woman, what, what does a pregnant woman do in regards to fasting? Well, what, what, does, what has Allah said in regards to those who are weak or who are ill? Okay, so this is, this is using reasoning. 
So in the Quran, Allah has told us a person who is ill, if they're able to keep it good, otherwise they can make qada afterwards. And then this was compared and said, okay, a pregnant woman will do something similar if she's not feeling well. Anyhow, we conclude by saying that he passed away in Baghdad and this is where he was buried as well. Now, one question many people ask is, um, how is it that the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, has spread sort of most throughout the world? If you look at in terms of people who follow the madhab, you'll find most people, a majority of the ummah, actually follow the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. Uh, there's a number of reasons to this. The first, the scholars would mention, is the sincerity of the individual. Allah accepts whom he wills, and this is a sign of the acceptance of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. But not only that, alongside that we have, this is something between, uh, which only Allah knows. However, alongside that, at that time, although the Abbasid Khalifa at the time totally opposed Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, but after his demise, the Abbasids became Hanafis. They were all Hanafis. Now, if the governing party uh, is following the Hanafi madhab, of course, that's going to spread. And this is what happened uh, in Iraq. So Iraq, we had, um, so the political adoption was, uh, uh, Imam Abu Yusuf was made the judge. He was the Qadi. And when he appointed, he was Qadi, he was Qadi al-Qadad, the judge of all judges. So when he appointed other judges, they were also Hanafi as well. So beneath them, the people who followed them, the Hanafi madhab began to spread all throughout Asia, even towards China, Persia, and until and even in Egypt as well. When the Fatimids came, who were an extreme version of the Shia, they tried to eradicate the Hanafi madhab. Um, and they were successful to a degree until when Salahuddin Ayyubi rahimahullah, when he came, he was a Shafi'i. Um, that's why we find in Egypt, we find Hanafis, but we find a lot of Shafi'is as well. And this is from the time of Salahuddin Ayyubi rahmatullah alayhi. Again, we find the Hanafi madhab spread throughout, spread throughout Syria, um, Turkey as well. Uh, in Turkey, we find, and last but not least, the Ottoman Empire. Um, of course, we know about the, the last uh, Khilafat al-Islamiyyah was the Ottoman Empire, we find, which was Hanafi, and that spread um, far and wide. And up to maybe 250, 300 years ago, um, in the Haramain also, there were actual Jama'at, so you'd have the Salah would take place, there would be like a Hanafi uh, Salah, a Maliki Salah, uh, a Shafi'i Salah, and a Hanbali Salah, you know, different Adhans, Iqamas, and Salahs taking place for, for the followers, to accommodate for the followers uh, of the different A'imma uh, as well. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, um, he took over after his teacher, who was his teacher again? Hamad, Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman. Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman was the most learned of the students of Ibrahim and Nakha'i. So Hamad ibn Abi Sulaiman's teacher was Ibrahim Nakha'i. Hamad was, was the most learned teacher of his. And Ibrahim and Nakha'i, uh, from amongst all the people of his time, he was the most knowledgeable in regards to the verdicts of Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. And Ibrahim and Nakha'i, he studied by Al-Qama. Al-Qama was the closest person to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu was very close to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I just told you earlier, some sahaba, they say when we entered, we thought he was from amongst the family and the household of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sahibu siwa, sahibu na'alayn, sahibu al-risada. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, if I was to appoint anybody as a leader, as an Amir, without any consultation, who would I appoint? 
I would appoint Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu. Read the Quran as Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu reads the Quran. Many ahadith we find where Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has praised uh, Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. Um, I'm going to conclude on this. Uh, Shaykh Muhammad Awam has mentioned something quite interesting. You know, we spoke about hadith and people saying that Imam Abu Hanifa wasn't really a hadith person. Um, he, he, he's written something quite interesting mentioning that one of the closest people or the closest person to Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was whom? Sayyiduna Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A great individual. And after all of the Anbiya alayhi salatu wasalam, without any dispute, we believe, Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah believe that he's the most noble, the most righteous person in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after the Prophets. Radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And in regards to him, how many hadith do we hear from Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu How many ahadith have we heard? How many? How often do you hear that Hazrat Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu said this? Hardly. Does that, did he not know any hadith? Are, you, are we going to say this? He didn't know any hadith at all. He wasn't really a person of hadith. He did something else. Are we going to say this? Of course not. Of course not. He was the most knowledgeable from amongst the Sahaba. The greatest and the most knowledgeable from amongst the Sahaba. So just because we haven't heard or they've not narrated for whatever reason, that doesn't mean we can dispel this and say that he wasn't aware of the hadith to the extent in those times. For those scholars, nowadays it's different. Or anybody can become a sheikh today. In those days, okay, to become an imam, a mujtahid, to be considered a faqih, you had to know hadith. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah. Somebody asked Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah, if somebody knows a hundred thousand ahadith, would you consider him to be a faqih, an imam, a mujtahid? He says, no. About 200,000 hadith. He says, no. He says, 300,000 hadith. He says, no. 400,000. He says, no. 500,000. He says, maybe. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah considered Imam Abu Hanifa as a mujtahid, a faqih, and an imam. What, what does that tell you? Okay, so Imam Abu Hanifa, one, one, an individual says, I entered the house of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah, and I saw he, there were many, many books. And I asked him, what's all this? He said, these are books of ahadith. And there are 70,000 ahadith which I have taken from these particular books. And from there, I want to present 40,000 ahadith to the ummah in a compilation. Um, similarly, I told you the amount of sahaba that had settled in Kufa from whom uh, Imam Abu Hanifa benefited from. And of course, it was an environment of ahadith and the sayings of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He passed away in the year 150 uh, Hijri and he was closest to the era of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from amongst all of the other Imams. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala give us the ability to benefit from the teachings of these great Imams. May Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala grant us unity amongst us.